once again, Merry Christmas. And uh, as you guys know, here at Charles River Church, um, we go through books of the Bible, and, and currently we've been in the Luke series. Uh, well, the past month we've been in Advent, but prior to that we've been going through Luke, and we did the Upside Down Kingdom for a long time. And so uh, I'm really excited to, to jump back into Luke. So the text for this morning is going to be Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, if you have a Bible. You can grab it. If you don't have a Bible, we have these uh, white ones, white and blue ones around. You can grab one of those and uh, and take that home if you don't have one. That's our gift to you. uh, There's nothing like the Word of God, so please um, feel free to grab one of those. And honestly, right now, I've never worn one of these things in my life, and I'm not sure if I should, like, preach or do choreography for you guys. (laughs) I feel like a new kid on the block, and I... It's strange. Pastor Josh is used to it, so he's used to being a new kid. Anyway, um, so the reading for this morning is Luke 18, starting in verse 1. It says, And he, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would just quiet our hearts right now to receive what it is that you have for us out of your word. Your word is life. Your word is truth. And I pray this morning that you would use me in whatever regard you would like for your glory and for our joy. God, we love you. We look forward to all that you have for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So, shortly after graduating from college and and getting married, uh, Pam and I moved up to Roslindale. And uh, we, we loved it here. But what we were trying to do is, it was, gosh, it was like eight years ago at this point. And, and we were looking for a church to get plugged into. We, we know that local church is, is something that's very, very important um, and being a part of. So we were looking for a local church, and we, we were striking out. For a few months, we were, we were going here and there, and we couldn't really find anything that was gospel-centered and, and really took the Word of God seriously. And praise God for all that he's done within the past few years. There are, like, so many unbelievably good church plants that we work with and, and fellowship with and, and love. And So Charles River Church was not here at the time, so that's, get that out of the way. Uh, so what we ended up doing is that we, we went down on the South Shore, and we went to a church down there, and it was, like, 45 minutes to an hour away, which... The church itself was great. Nothing, I'm not going to say a bad word about it. Um, it. The people there, still friendly with, love them and love the church there. But like I said, it was close to an hour away. And it was difficult to do ministry there. I had sort of backed into leading worship there, which is another story in and of itself. But 
It was difficult to, to minister to our neighbors when trying to invite them to church. It's an hour drive, and they're not interested to go in the first place. So we, uh, we, we started to get disheartened. And Pam especially, um, we, had these, we, we had these burdens for outreach. We, we knew that we had this truth, this awesome message of reconciliation between God and man where there can be peace instead of hostility. And, and, and we couldn't do anything with it. We, we were ministering to our, our brothers and sisters in the church, sort of, because even then, midweek, it's not like we could just pop over their house. We had to schedule things like two, three weeks in advance. And that was before we had kids. So uh, we tried a couple things. We got a coffee house for the middle school and, and high school students. We, we started doing that for a little while, Friday nights, and that we did a couple of those, and it kind of fizzled out and never really got the, the legs that it needed. And we tried to do this ministry that we were calling Love in Action, where we could do like, a pub, like community outreach and, and public service and sort of on the umbre- under the umbrella of we're God's people. Let us show God's love to our community. We, we believe that the local church should have an influence on the, a positive influence on the community around it and that the, if, if the church were to up and disappear, then the community would, would notice and, and be the worse for it. Um, so we, we were trying to do that, and that never got really any legs or any steam behind it either. So for like two years, we're praying and we're asking God, like, why? What is it? What, and, and Pam especially, I can remember specifically one night where she was just beaten down and she was just really, really discouraged. Now, why would God place this burden and the, this skill set on her if, if she didn't have an outlet to serve him with it? And we were really discouraged for, for a while. And, and little did we know that during those two years while we're praying and while we're seeking the Lord, another church had been planted about five minutes away from where we lived in Roslindale, in Charles River Church. And we got a flyer one Easter, and we were like, oh, this is interesting. This is actually really well done. And, we, you know, really cool that there's a, a church in the area that's, that's doing uh, it seems to be gospel-based and, and Bible-centered, and that's awesome. Um, so, long story short, uh, we, I had, we had planned on packing up and moving to Louisville so I could pursue seminary. So we left that church down on the South Shore and decided to check out this, this Charles River Church for a couple months before we headed down to Louisville. Maybe we could invite a neighbor to church. And lo and behold, that seminary that I was going to in Louisville opened up online, and here I stand before you two and a half years later. (laughs) It didn't work out, but God had been moving the pieces behind the scenes the entire time, and it really strengthened our faith, and it really, but during it, it was, there was a lot of what and why, and just kind of holding on, God, I know you're good, but, but I don't see it right now, um, so with that in mind, let's, let's take a look at this text, you have, Verse 1 says, and, and he, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, what I love about this parable, and, and, and it was a no-brainer for me to pick this particular uh, passage to, to preach from. I had options, and, and this one literally tells you right there, why did Jesus, what is this parable about? Well, it's about praying all the time and not losing heart. Like, I can't, I can't blow that too bad for my first, pre- first preaching job, so... So it's about pre, it's always praying and not losing heart. And, uh, 
And so then Jesus goes into this parable about a, about a judge, an unrighteous judge. So you get this, this idea that this guy is, he's proud, he's arrogant, he's not in it for the purposes of, of what you hope for in a judge, which if you, if you get called to court, you kind of hope that you're judge and you're, and you're innocent, Let's, okay? And you kind of hope that the judge is in it for the reasons of promoting justice and punishing evil, this guy, not so much. This guy couldn't care less. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. He's his own guy. And, and he's, he's interested in not so much promoting justice and discouraging evil and punishing evil, but, but for the position or for the power. And so you have this, this widow, this poor widow, who constantly keeps coming to him and coming to him. And she would have been an outcast and, and, and sort of really low on the social order of the day. And she just comes, keeps coming to him and coming to him and pestering him and pestering him and pestering him. And finally, out of no obligation to justice, out of no, no real duty to, to society or to God or for, for any reason that you, no honorable reason. It's just that he's been beaten down by this woman. And finally he says, fine. Have your justice. Here it is. Who cares? Go away. And the woman gets her justice. Now look at me. This is not a picture of our God. Okay. Parables can be tricky sometimes, but this is not a picture of our God. What we have, he says this. Jesus says this parable. And and what a parable is, it's basically just a fictional story that conveys a, a real truth. And so we don't have to believe that there was really a judge who did this. There may be, I'm sure, that over the course of history there have been. But Jesus was a parable teller, and, and he's God in flesh, so he was really, really good at it. So he tells us this parable in order to say what he says next, which is, uh, hear what the unrighteous judge says, verse 7, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? So, so Jesus tells us this story about this man who couldn't care less, unrighteous, but the widow keeps persisting and pestering and pestering to tell us this guy, this no good, if he finally gives justice, even though he could care less, won't our God who is actually for us and loves us, won't he do the same? But out of out of different purposes. So, so continue to pester him and continue to, to, to pray and don't lose heart, even when you don't see it. Now, um, I could go a lot of ways with this this morning. I could, I could stand before you and I could say, like, beat you over the head with law, with, with you do it, you do, and you do. So, so God, you have God. He made you. He made everything, and he, he gives you life, and he gave you breath, and he gave you your everything, all the good stuff that you have, and you can't find five minutes to pray. You, can't, you can binge watch Netflix for 10 hours straight, but you can't find five minutes to go. I don't want to do that. I've been there. That's death. What I want to do is I want to, I want to paint a picture of the truth of who this God is so that I won't have to say, go pray. You'll, you'll be really excited to go that you get to speak with him, that he invites you to pester him. Now, I could also go another way with it, and I could say, I could give you some soft, gushy platitude where, 
I just have like some nature scene come up on the screen with some text on it that says, you know, when God closes a door, he opens a window. And, and you're, you're sitting there and, and that feels really nice. And then you walk out the door and you get into your real life and it kicks you in the soul. And, and meanwhile, you're repeating to yourself on, on repeat, when God closes a door, he opens a window. When God closes a door, he opens a window. Meanwhile, God has latched the door, deadbolted it, shackled the window shut because he is much more interested in your eternity than he is in your comfort right now. He is much more interested in your eternity than he is in your comfort right now. And if he loves you, he is going to put you in uncomfortable circumstances in which you must rely on him. Because if you can just do it on your own, you have no need for God. Meanwhile, you're stealing his breath and you're, you're, you're stealing all his stuff. You're just using it without giving him glory and thanks for it. But if he loves you, he will put you in circumstances in which you need him and you come to the end of yourself and you understand, I can't do it. I need help. So, his ways are so much higher than our ways. They're so much better than our ways. And we, we don't understand them. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isn't it good to know that God knows better than us? Isn't it good to know that he's smarter than you? Isn't that, that, that should be comforting. That, that you don't have to know everything and, and that, that should free you knowing that there is a good and gracious and loving God who, who is actually smarter than you. Um, let me tell you a completely fictional story. Let's say you have this guy. He's a dad. We'll call him, for the purpose of this story, Devin. Devin Fernando. <laughs> and Devin is emptying his dishwasher. And while he's placing glasses up in the cabinet, he looks down and his son, about a year and a half years old, would call him Levon. So Levon, when, when Devin looks back down, Levon has grabbed the sharpest, biggest knife in the house out of the dishwasher because he's a boy and knives are awesome. So he has grabbed. What is the most loving thing that Devin can do in that moment? Is it to, to, to just give it to him? Oh, you, no. The most loving thing that Devin can do is to slap his hand once the knife is clear, <laughs> say no very sternly, and take the knife and remove it from the situation. No matter how much he pesters me, no matter how much he pesters Devin. <laughs> All right, it's me. <laughs> no matter how much Levi pesters me and, and, and nags and screams and wails for that knife, 
There is no chance I am going to give it to him because I love him too much. And a lot of times we're like little kids who, who are just, we don't understand what God understands. And the things that we're asking him for will kill us, either physically or spiritually. We're that little kid grabbing that knife going, Daddy, let's go play. And then when, when God removes it and disciplines us, we, we think it's totally unfair because from, from his point of view, he just got a free knife. This is awesome. He's like a superhero now. But from God's per- point of view, that will kill him. From, from the Father's point of view, that awesome thing will actually be his death, be his downfall. So we're like stupid little kids sometimes asking God for stuff that will kill us. Physically or spiritually. So the question comes, how do we even know what to ask God for? If, if we're like these foolish little children asking God for foolish stuff, how do we know what to ask God for? Well, the answer is right here. <laughs> this is your Bible. Everything that God wants us to know about him and about us and about the relationship between him and us and how to have it restored is held within these pages. Now, this book is actually more of like a library. It's 66 books that were written over the course of like 1,500 to 2,000 years over three separate continents by 40 different authors, all conveying one majestic, beautiful story of God's creation, man's fall into sin, and God's reconciliation of man to himself through, the, through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Now again, I could, I could hammer you down with law and say, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. But I don't want to do that. I've been there. It's death. So how do you read your Bible? I hear a lot of people say that it's really difficult. It's, it, it's hard to understand. And, and I'll, I'll give you that. For some of it, some of it is tricky. In fact, in Second Peter, Peter says that, that some of what Paul writes is difficult to understand. That's awesome. <laughs> because if Peter, who, who walked beside Jesus for three years, was like his best friend, tells us that Paul's tricky to understand, well, then it doesn't make me feel like such a dunce when I have to consult a commentary or ask somebody who's a little bit more mature than I am some questions. But the beautiful thing about this, if, and let this be an encouragement to you, if you've never really read your Bible regularly, there is so much beauty in here. There's so much awesome stuff in here. It's like, it's like that movie that you wish that you could go back and see for the first time, except you have that opportunity right now to actually read it for the first time. Now, a lot of it's just narrative. You can read it just like any other story you would read. You know, Jesus told this parable or, or performed this miracle here, and, and here were the ramifications. Here were, here's how people reacted. Or King David was anointed king here, and these were the ramifications, and, and this is what came of it. But, but by continual reading, you start to piece things together. By keeping it together, those, those unclear passages become more clear by passages that you have, you have already read. So, so King David's being anointed king 
suddenly goes from this just interesting story to, wait a minute, wasn't King David, he was in the line of Judah. And I'm pretty sure back in Genesis 49, Judah was, was prophesied over that, that kings will come from him. And wait a minute, wasn't Jesus in the line of King David? So, what, is, so Jesus is the one that was promised all that time. Wait, oh my goodness, this is amazing. It's like the snowball effect of, of truth. And, and these connections form. And don't feel bad if it's your first time through and you don't get it. Be encouraged. There's, you have, it's like, unlike that movie that you, have to, that, you, that you wish you could go back and watch again, this gets better and better and better the more you read it. Now, one more quick word about, about the Bible, and we'll move on. Um, I lied. Two more quick words about the Bible, and then we'll move on. Um, this is the ultimate rule of our faith. Uh, anything that contradicts what we know about God and his nature, be it Facebook theology or, or a real hardcover book or, or speaking to somebody, anything that contradicts what we know about God's nature and his gospel is trash. Throw it away. This is the rule of our faith. Like, we can, we can find out other things about God. We can know, like, not everything that we know about God. So, for instance, my little girl, Christmas Eve, got the flu, and it was unbelievably sad. And, and, but, so yesterday, she still had it, and I'm her father, and I love her so much. And I'm looking at her on the couch, just so pathetic and cute. Like, when kids are sick, they're, like, unbelievably cute. Like they, but anyway, so I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, gosh, as her father, I would give anything right now to take her sickness. And in that moment, I realized, oh, my goodness, we just celebrated the incarnation. That's, that's what God did. He took our sickness. As a loving father, he took our sin in sending Jesus for us. Unbelievable. So, but I wouldn't have made that connection if I wasn't familiar with what's in this book. <laughs> so ultimately, um, now, last thing about what I want to say about the Bible. You may have heard this parable, not a Christian parable, about blind monks. So you have a bunch of blind monks who all approach an elephant and they're blind, so they don't know, they don't know what they're looking at. Well, they're, they're not looking at anything, so they don't, they don't know what they're, they're, they don't know it's an elephant. So they go up to it, and one of them kind of grabs the leg and feels around and says, oh, it must be a tree. It's, it, it feels like a, it's hard, and it's big. It feels like a tree. And another one goes around to the tail and kind of grabs the tail, and oh, it, it's, a, it's a rope. And this parable, and then there are a bunch of them. One, the side is a wall, and and basically, the, the point of the parable is, is saying that, that God is way too big for us to know him, and, and everybody knows a little bit about him, but nobody really knows a lot about him, so everybody's, nobody's wrong, and everybody's kind of right. And what if the elephant went, hey, guys, I'm an elephant. That's what we have. In the Bible, this is God's revealed word to us. He, he, through the Holy Spirit, inspired men to write down exactly what he wanted us to know about him. That's our Bible. So, 
Let that be an encouragement to you that as we approach the new year, I know some of you guys are probably making that resolution. I'm going to get through Leviticus this year, man. I don't care how much it takes. I'm going to get through Leviticus. And then you get to Numbers, and you're like, I'm going to get through Numbers. And then you jump into the New Testament again. There is so much beauty in the Bible. Let that be an encouragement to you. Now, back to the text. We have this, this issue of justice and mercy. And this is where our God, this is where the true God really shines the brightest among all the other false gods. And, and So, let's look at atheism, for instance. In atheism, there's no justice. Let me be unbelievably clear. I'm not saying that atheists cannot be just. A lot of them are. But what I'm saying is that they have no grounding. They have no external source other than their preference for justice. It's sinking. So let me make this clear. Again, there are atheists who are unbelievably just. There are atheists who are more moral and more kind and more generous than I am. That's not the point. The point is that that's their only root, the only grounding for that is based upon their preference. So, so in atheism, in, in naturalism, you have, in the beginning, there was nothing. And then nothing exploded. And now we have everything. And we have automobiles and we have cars and we have, well, automobiles and cars. We have the internet. And we have, so... There's no source. It's just, as Richard Dawkins, a, a famous atheist scientist, says, there's no good, there is no bad, there is just blind, pitiless indifference. That we are nothing before we are born, we come and we live maybe 70, 80 years, none of it really matters, and then we go back to nothing. Ultimately, the universe will die up in a heat death, or unless it changes with whatever they come up with next, there, it doesn't matter. Nothing ultimately matters. It's unlivable. Yes, you can claim it, but, but you don't live up to what you, you profess to believe. It's unlivable. Now, other deistic religions, like, like Islam, for instance, they have justice and they have mercy. But... In Islam, justice and mercy can't really coexist. Let me explain. So, yes, Muslims will claim that they, are, they, they, they sin. They, no, no qualms about that, just like us. But Allah will, will kind of forgive and, and let them into paradise anyway. Just kind of, so, so the sins... Yeah, you did some bad stuff. Yeah, you did some good stuff. But we'll kind of just wink at the bad stuff and let you in because I like you. And here you go. It's like, like yeah, you, you, you told that lie that ruined that person's life for a few years, but who's that just? Nobody's that holy. Come on. I'll give you a little noogie on your way through the door. Like that, it's crazy. So the, the, the sins have to be brushed under the rug almost, like just kind of, uh, 
okay, come on in. It's only in the Christian faith, it's only in the true faith in which justice and mercy converge on the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God took every sin and placed it on Jesus Christ. And he became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. So, so th- this, this unbelievable, Luther calls it the great exchange, where, where he takes our filth and places it on the righteous son of God and then crushes him. Every sin that has ever been committed will be paid for. And it has been paid for by Jesus Christ at the cross or it will be paid for by you at the end. God is that holy. He is that just. But he is also that merciful that that he didn't have to send Christ. Christ didn't have to freely come and live the life that we are required to live and die the death that we are supposed to die. He didn't have to do that. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But out of mercy and out of love, he came. And he went to the cross and he bore our sins on him. And the Father crushed him for us. The great exchange. That's what we're saying. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be righteous enough. You cannot be holy enough to earn God's favor. It's grace. It's all of grace. That we can, because of what he's done, we just cry out and trust him. Just ask. This this. This faith that we have, it's not this blind faith. It's not this, well, it sounds like a nice idea, so we'll just kind of go with it. It's a cool story. It's, the, it's more of a trust. It's when, when, when I say I have faith in you to somebody. It's not, I'm not saying, like, I believe you're there. It's, it's I trust that you can do what, what is set before you. And by by placing faith in Christ, what we're saying is, all we're doing is we're saying, Jesus, please, I understand that I don't live up to your standard. I need your help, and I trust that you can do it. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we have. So, We'll kind of round third base. Going to verse 8b. Basically it says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, the short answer is yes. Praise God. Because Jesus back in Matthew 16, after Peter confesses that he is the Christ, says that Jesus says that he will, he will establish his church and the gates of hell 
will not overcome it. It will not. So yes, when the Son of Man returns, yes. So we came off this Advent season talking about and, and, and meditating on the, the first Advent of Christ, his first coming in the form of a little baby, unbelievably beautiful story that God would deign to such a level as to be born as a human, first of all, and then secondly, in, in this lowly manger, live a poor, homeless life. But now we're getting into the second advent, the second coming of Christ. That yes, he came and he established his kingdom here, but he is coming back to fully inaugurate it. That everything will be made new. That he will reign. So, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Prevail against it. And praise God for that. But we need, to, we need to think about why is Jesus in the first place, why is he telling his, his disciples and his apostles to constantly pray and not lose heart? He's in charge, right? He can do whatever he wants. He could just give us nice, soft lives. Well, we already talked about he's more interested in our eternity than he is in our comfort right now. You talk about the th- first 300 years of Christianity. They're just full of martyrs just full of people who are killed for the faith, for professing faith in Jesus Christ, saying that Christ is king. And there's a, there's a, a famous church father named Tertullian who, was, who he lived around two, 300 A.D. His boys called him Tully. That's not true. But his name is Tertullian. And, and his, one of his famous quotes is that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That where there is immense persecution, the church grows like inexplicably, where God alone gets the glory for it. So China, 30 years ago, was a completely closed country, totally illegal to be a Christian, couldn't have a Bible. Now we have our keyboard player, Scott, who is spending semesters over there teaching history, walking down the street, he's holding a Bible, nobody gives him... Because for years and years, while Christianity was, was persecuted over in China, the, the church there exploded because there is a witness. There is, these people don't care what happens to them. They believe in this Christ so much. What do you believe in so much that you'd be willing to die for? People get that. People are interested in that. What is that? We need to take our eyes off of our current circumstance and fix them directly on Jesus. We need, to, we need to kind of step out of time in our mind, if you will, and think, like, how in, in two billion years, how am I going to feel about this circumstance right now? Like, what enables, what enables a group of Christians to kneel on a beach over in the Middle East while their, while their persecutors stand behind them with swords and videotape, cutting their heads off. And what enables them to, to recite the Lord's Prayer and to forgive those who are killing them? It's the hope. In, I know, we're a couple days after Christmas and I'm talking about decapitation. I apologize. At least I didn't lead with it. But that's the hope that we have in Christ. That 
when we get to glory, we'll talk to these men and say, was it worth it? And they'll look at you like, was it worth it? I got my head cut off, but I've been here with Christ forever in ever-increasing. Yes, it was worth it. Like all of Jesus' disciples were, were martyred in terrible ways, except for John, as far as we know. You talk to Peter when you get up to, to heaven and say, Peter, was it worth getting crucified upside down? Yes. Now, am I saying that, that by placing faith in Christ, you are going to be beheaded or, or crucified? No. Praise God, no. He's given us such incredible mercy here. But let us, let us understand and have that perspective that he is better than whatever the world can offer us. That if you place faith in Christ and immediately he removes everything else from you, then you have made the best decision that you could ever make. That 50 trillion years from now, you're not going to be mourning your loss of whatever it is right now. You'll be dwelling with Christ in ever-increasing joy. Now, that's a, that's a crazy thought. And that, again, is where our faith shines really bright. Is that, I mean, think about it. That, that I know as little kids, we, I can remember lying in bed, and I've talked to other people, you lie in bed and you just think of forever, and it's terrifying. Like, forever? Like, there's no end. Like, always. And, and, and think about, no matter what it is, if you're doing it for a million years, no matter how much you enjoy it, that thing will become hell. <laughs> Whatever it is, it will become awful and tedious and monotonous. And then you realize, oh, I've been here for a million years, and now there's no end in sight. <laughs> That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the truth of Christianity, is that we have that thing inside of all of us, that thing that that was placed there by God himself, that, that we are made in the image of God. And we have that, that longing for something outside of ourselves, that longing for something. It's like, it's like this nostalgia of something that isn't even real. And it pops up once in a while. It's, like, it's that longing for something that's just beyond our lips' ability to articulate. It's just beyond our fingertips. It's, it's, it, it's out there, but it's so real. It's more real than anything that we've ever experienced, and it's, and it's in us. And that's the rest that we get at the end when Christ returns for all of us and makes everything, as my kid's Bible says, makes everything sad become untrue. And we get to dwell with him in ever-increasing joy, in ever-increasing rejoicing, because we have him. We are with him forever. Unbelievable. Believe it. It's beautiful. It's true. It's like, it's the most true thing that we know, and we it's like almost embarrassing to talk about it right now. There's something in me that's like, there's a little twinge. And I don't even know what it is. It's sort of, I don't know. It's just, but it's my greatest hope is for that day where, where 
he remakes everything. And sin is no more. And sickness is no more. There are no more doctors. There are no more lawyers. There are no more preachers. Think about that. Preachers are going to be out of a job. We need me here explaining the Bible when we can just talk to Jesus. It's beautiful. He's right there in the camp. So whatever your circumstances are, last point, and I'll remember. If you, in this congregation right now, have been praying and earnestly seeking God and asking Him for something for a long time, there can be a real Thank you.